Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. What an awesome room of cool people. We're going to get started. We still have some folks ordering and settling in, but we want to be a little thrifty with the evening, so I'm going to get us going. And we always begin and end with gratitude here at Golden Beer Talks. So first, we're going to start with this awesome staff here at the Windy Saddle, because they take such good care of us. They really are the best. So you should shower some love on them if you get an opportunity. We're also really grateful to goldentoday.com for promoting our events, for being an amazing presence in our community, and for making sure we all know what's going on. If you don't already, get email messages from goldentoday.com. Go to their website. You can sign up. Every day they'll send you a little message and tell you what's going on in town or what's happening with our local businesses. It's pretty cool. What's going on at School of Mines, that kind of thing. I'm going to bring up our beer ambassador. He's going to talk a little bit about the beers we have tonight and probably some other interesting information because it it usually doesn't stop there. Frank Blaha, Beer Ambassador, come on up. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you all for coming. This is really a gratifying turnout. You know, we we do this because we don't have enough to do. You know, we got too much spare time on our hands. So it's really nice that people show up. And this is a really very gratifying turnout. Uh, I wish I'd bought more beer. But anyway. Um, <laughs> so uh, the featured brewery this month is Barrels and Bottles, just right around the corner on 12th Street. Some of you haven't been there, and I urge you to go. It's a very nice place. Zach and Abby George are very friendly. They've got uh, very nice staff. Very uh, approachable, very friendly. They'll talk to you about their beers. And the beers that we have here tonight, we have um, the Golden Imperial Coffee Milk Stout. And and despite all of that being in the title, I think it's a deceptive beer because I, I asked for a taster of that, and he brought me back the taster, and I thought oh, he grabbed the wrong tapper on that because this is not what I was expecting as a milk stout. I thought I was going to get a very dark thick beer. And it was golden, not because of the town, but because of the color, because it's golden. And it's a very unusual beer. They're nearly out of it. They weren't sure they were going to be able to give me four growlers of it. And they just barely got that done. So it's going to be gone there soon. And they brewed it once before in the summer. Um, It's very approachable. It's also very high in alcohol, 9.1%. So it's, it's pretty stout. It's a big beer. And uh, it's the Big Labirsky is what they call it, from the Big Lebowski. And um, it's just a big beer. So uh, I I hope that you guys try it. And the brewmaster there was offended that I did not immediately notice the coffee flavors in the beer. And they use Pangea coffee beans from over on Arapahoe Street, Pangea Roasters. And they cold-soaked Pangea coffee beans for the coffee flavor in this Cheyenne. Cheyenne, sorry. Yeah, one block further over. My, my apologies. Um, I wrote it down wrong. Also, we have the Golden Town Brown Porter, which is sort of an adapted recipe from what George Washington had for his porter, except that he had apparently a sweet tooth, might be why he had bad teeth, and 
Uh, he had a lot of molasses in his porter, so it was very sweet beer, and they supposedly adapted his recipe to come up with the Golden Town Brown Porter, which is also a very approachable beer. It's a very nice. It's not extreme in any way. So uh, thanks to Barrels and Bottles for supporting us, as uh, all of the breweries have throughout town. Uh, and I will mention that this is the 100th anniversary of Buffalo Bill's death, and they're having a little uh, vigil up at his grave tonight. So if I wasn't here, I'd be up there. And I'm sure that there will be some spirits involved with that as well. Uh, coming up next week is the Colorado Cowboy Gathering over at the American Mountaineering Center. It's January 19th through the 22nd. Cowboy music, cowboy poetry, and storytelling. And it's the 28th year, kind of the last weekend of Stock Show in association with Stock Show. Uh, hope you guys come for that. We have some uh, uh, business cards on the different tables. If you, don't, if you want to take one and there isn't one there for you, come see me. I've got more. I've got a lot more. Um, Buffalo Rose. So the Buffalo Rose, it had been announced that it was closing in April for remodeling, and it's not. It's going to be open at least through the fall. So they're staying open through the summer. And right now they have two new terrain beers on tap, and they have a Colorado native on tap at the Buffalo Rose. And Blue Moon? Okay. And then, in terms of a factoid or a beer toid for uh, all of us, um, when I was doing my beer tasting last night, one of our uh, fairly regulars came by and said, hey, my wife got me this great thing for Christmas, a growler works. And so this is a stainless steel, maintains the pressure, must be hooked up to CO2, um, but I, I, I was going to buy one and have it here on show and tell, but uh, I got over to the Blue Moose a little bit too late. They were already closed. The Blue Moose is next to Golden Sweets, and they have growler works there, W-E-R-K-S, works. Stainless steel maintains pressure, maintains your carbonation, will keep your beer good for weeks. Not sure we need that. It's in six. It's pricey. Um, I, online it was uh, like $159, but it comes in half gallon and one gallon sizes. Now the one gallon might be good for a few weeks, uh, you know, but half gallon, I don't know. That that would be gone in time that you wouldn't need it all. But anyway, so growler works. And uh, it's pretty awesome. It looked, it looked awesome, and I would have liked to have had one here for show and tell, but the Blue Moose was already closed at 5.55 when I ran over there just a little while ago. Um, and with that, I'm going to bring up Matt, who's going to introduce our speaker. And thank you all for coming. I hope you like the beer. See you next month. We have a Colorado native tonight. He was suggested from a, by a friend of mine, Tina Volker, who's up, up at Mines, and I hear he was, she was on the uh, search committee that brought him. I have heard, heard rumors that he's one of the brightest professors up there at Mines. And um, he's originally from Colorado Springs, went up to CU Boulder and did his undergraduate work and got a Bachelor of Science in Chemical, and chem, chemical Engineering. Uh, apparently did a year in Nepal when you were... Un, an undergraduate. Uh, P, his PhD is in chemical and biomolecular engineering from Cornell. Does anyone know Cor where Cornell is? Anyone know the, some of the famous authors from that area? Now I forgot to write them down. <laughs> E.B. White? 
Rod Sterling and Nabokov. Um, he's married to his beautiful wife who we met up at CU Boulder. They have two beautiful daughters, a four-year-old and a 14-month-old. And he is drinking the porter tonight. Please welcome Dr. Keith Neves. Well, I'd like to start by thanking the organizers for the invitation. This is a real treat for me to come out and uh, obviously talk to people in Golden. I work in Golden, uh, so this is a great opportunity. The beer is fantastic. The food has been fantastic, so I really appreciate the opportunity to come and, and talk. So. so I was asked not to give a, a PowerPoint presentation, so there's not a bunch of uh, talking points here. It's just videos. And they'll do a, do a much better job of explaining the, uh, the science here than I would using my vocabulary. So uh, I have to, I'll start with an admission that I have never watched. I've never seen this movie, but I know that a number of you have. I know a lot of people have seen this movie, The Fantastic Voyage. You know it as a touchstone. Good. So I have a colleague that I work with on this uh, project. Uh, he's significantly older than I am. And he... Uh, tends to, he, he talks with a lot of uh, these touch, these uh, science fiction type of uh, uh, analogies, okay? So Star Trek and Star Wars and Klingons and tractor beams and I don't do any of that. And I don't, I'm not a horrible person. If I've met a science fiction movie, I'm just going to tell you why it's not right. Like the physics isn't right, the chemistry isn't right, major buzzkill, I know. So don't, don't take me to one of those. However, I gave this talk this uh, summer, I, a similar talk. I was at a conference in Vermont, and I you know, gave what I thought was a very eloquent talk. And as soon as I was done, uh, a colleague of mine from Wisconsin came over to me and said, you have to see the Fantastic Voyage, because I had stripped all of the Fantastic Voyage references out of this talk. And so since then, I've just put it in here, because that seems to be somewhat works. So uh, you know, the idea here, I mean, this, this is, is not just science fiction, I guess is part of what I'm going to talk about today, is the idea is that we can put robots, we can put things into your body that can go and do all kinds of uh, non-invasive types of procedures that we now do very invasively. So what I'll talk about today, I have kind of two parts to this talk. One is how do you get things to move around in the body? How do you get really small things to move around in the body? And that's, what, that, that's, that's a bit of a challenge. And the second part is how do we use that to dissolve blood clots? And so that's a main part of my research is how do clots form? How do we dissolve clots? And I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit in the context of, of stroke. So if you were watching Fantastic Voyage with me, what I would tell you is that the way that a submarine moves or propels, and if you shrunk down that submarine to a very small amount, small size, and then you inject it into someone's bloodstream, it would not work at all. Okay? <laughs> and so the, the premise of the movie is, is a bit lost on me. But, and I'll show you why, and so this video is here. So I'm going to go back and forth on my computer. But. Okay. So what you're going to see here is a, a video. This is a, uh, a guy named G.I. Taylor. He's kind of a, a very famous person in fluid mechanics. And these are some great films from the 50s and 60s on fluid mechanics. And he's going to show why it's difficult to propel when you're really small uh, with a really nice demonstration. So what you're first going to see is just this uh, rubber band uh, driving this, this uh, um, ore back and forth. Okay? 
And by your own intuition, you know if I put that into water, it'll propel forward because that's the way a boat works. Okay? Rather nice. Here, what we're doing is we're going to take the same uh, uh, boat and we're going to put it in a very viscous fluid. So this is molasses or, or honey, something that's very, very viscous. And you notice it does not go very far. In fact, it doesn't go anywhere. All right? It just goes back and forth and back and forth. And it just peters out until the rubber band's gone. And you can see the issue here. For every stroke forward and every stroke backwards, it just inverts its uh, motion. So it's just going back and forth, back and forth. It'll never go anywhere. All right? Sad video as it <laughs> sort of drops down to the, to the, the subsurface. OK. So here's another way to propel yourself. Okay? This is a corkscrew. Okay, you're all uh, familiar with corkscrews. And this moves quite nicely through this really viscous fluid. Okay? And so this is the, a very key point to what, uh, what I'm, I'm going to talk about. So it turns out that when you're really small, fluid feels very viscous. Okay? And the challenge for doing propulsion at a small scale is getting that really sticky fluid off of you. And so the way that we move, and so our intuition is built around something we would call inertial forces. So when you're swimming and you push off the wall in a swimming pool, you propel forward by inertia. If you did that in, a, in honey, you would go nowhere. Okay? You would push off and you'd stop. So you need a way to get rid of that fluid, and you have to get it off you. And if you have a motion that is uh, what we would call, well, well if, it's, if the motion is forward and backwards, it's the same. So in this case, if I have a stiff oar, forward and backwards gets me nowhere, okay? because I can't get the fluid off of me. And so what we do, and a lot of other folks have done all over the, the, the world or all over the country, is we've tried to do these biomimetics, because there are really small things that move. Okay. So here's two of them, one sperm. And one's a, a bacteria. Okay? And what you'll notice about these two movies is they move differently than the way that you and I move and the way that fish move and the way that a boat moves. Uh, and these are the t only two ways we know, essentially, that you can move, or microorganisms, or s very small uh, bacteria, um, uh, these types of uh, creatures can move, is these two ways. One is called a flexible oar. So sperm is a flexible oar, meaning that it's a little bit like that boat, except that its forward motion and its backwards motion are not exactly the same because there's a little bit of give. There's some flexibility in that motion. And what it does is it actually has a traveling wave by which it sheds that fluid off. The other way that you can move is by a corkscrew-like motion. You can't see it too well here, but these guys are actually shaped like corkscrews. And this is exactly the way a wine corkscrew works. The reason that you can get it in and then you can pull it out is that there's a handedness to it. We call it a chirality, but a wine, if you go one way versus another way, it's different. Okay? So it doesn't, it's reverse motion and it's forward motion are, are not exactly the same. And so this guy's also able to shed fluid off of itself. And I'll show you another video that I think shows this a little bit better. But that's the big challenge. So how do we do that? How do we engineer devices to do that? So uh, a lot of folks work in this field. And so what you're seeing here is a, a figure that shows speed, how fast something moves. Uh, versus control, how, how well I can directionally control it. And what we've done, and what a lot of other folks have done, is we've tried to uh, just recreate these devices or recreate this type of motion in micro devices. And so on the upper right-hand side, or the upper left-hand side, rather, here, this is somebody who's actually just made a, something that looks a lot like that sporellum bacteria. 
okay? So something like this, and there's a, uh, a little magnetic head on it so I can spin it. Okay, so this is, this is a spin. They work pretty well, okay? Uh, the other motion is this flexible OR. And so what this is, this is actually a single red blood cell with uh, a, a little magnetic tail on it, and that magnetic tail has a little bit of flexibility. And that guy works fairly well, okay? So those are some what we call biomimicry. And these guys, they move okay. I mean, they're, they're, these are very cute examples, all right? But they're not particularly practical because these velocities, if, you have a, if you're having a stroke and you need to get a drug to that clot, um, five microns a second, 10 microns a second isn't going to cut it because it's going to take pretty, a fairly long time to, to get there, okay? So what we've done, and if we just compare that, these engineered devices don't do quite as well as nature, but what we've done is rather than trying biomimicry, let's, let's actually use a human invention. And let's see if we can recreate a wheel, a very small wheel, and use some of the same physics that we use for rolling to create a micro device. And that's kind of what I'll talk about today. So here's an example. We call these guys micro wheels. And you're going to see a movie, and what you're seeing is, a, 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 I think, seven beads. Okay? Each one of these beads is about the size of a blood cell. Okay? So uh, four and a half microns. Each one is the four and a half microns, and there's seven of them. And they will, they have, a, they're just plastic. They're latex. Okay? So a very calm polymer. You all drink a lot of it every day because there's a lot of latex in our water. Uh, <laughs> But what's special about this is it also has iron oxide in it, which you also probably have in your body. But uh, the iron oxide is a, is a really uh, is a type of material that we call super paramagnetic or paramagnetic. These are materials that are only magnetic when they're in a, in a magnetic field. So when there's no magnetic field, there's no magnets. They don't have any attraction to each other. When I put them in a magnetic field, they attract. Okay? This is the, uh, you know, the physics of an Etch-a-Sketch, if you've ever used one of those. Same idea. Okay? So we have an applied magnetic field. So these guys are really little, and we can assemble them and roll them. And that's really the, the and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how we do that, but these are materials that are used in the body already. So these are often used for contrast enhancement agents for MRIs because the iron oxide has a very uh, strong signal in an MR. So smaller versions of these particles are already used in the body, and they're pretty cheap. You can buy them off the shelf, which is also nice. So how does it actually work? So when I take these particles uh, and I put them in a rotating magnetic field, and so what you'll see in this, this series of movies is the magnetic field. It'll just be a, 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 an arrow that shows you how the, the field's going around. And then you'll see these little assemblies rolling. So there's the magnetic field and there's the, the movement. It's okay. I mean, it's kind of fun for the first couple hundred times you do this experiment, but it doesn't really go anywhere, so it's not particularly useful. <laughs> Okay? And it's not useful for our, for our purposes. And so uh, we were really trying to figure out, well, how do we get these things to, to actually translate? I mean, now they rotate, and they're doing some work, but they're not really, they're, they're not for this particular application particularly useful. And the insight here is, you know, in retrospect, fairly simple, but it, it took somebody uh, a lot smarter than me to do it. It was a, a postdoc that we hired. So I think our, our contribution was hiring a really smart guy to do this. <laughs> uh, but he more or less figured out that if we cant these uh, wheels off of the surface, or these, these assemblies off the surface, and if we uh, move that magnetic field with some angle, that they'll create friction and, and roll. That case. And so now what you'll see is that the, the field's a little bit rotated, and, the, and because the field's rotated off the surface, the wheel rotates off the surface, and it rolls along. 
Right? And that's I, now this is a little bit more intuitive than the, the how how microorganisms work. This is just creating friction with the surface, and it, it rolls along, just more or less like we would expect a wheel to roll along. So here's an example. So what you see is in this video is a wheel, and everything else. These are just uh, everything else you see in here are beads, but it really gets to this point of trying to shed fluid. What you'll notice is that all the beads, if you just think of those as markers of the fluid, they can't. They're they're stuck to the to the to the to the wheel. You can't really create uh, what we would normally think. If I if I had a macro-sized wheel and I spun it really fast, I'd be shedding off fluid really easily. But this stuff, all the you can see that these beads and these these uh, these uh, aggregates just kind of almost form like these orbits around this guy. You really can't get rid of the fluid near you. So you have to do something to get around that. And in this case, the way we've done that is actually to create this friction with the, with the surface. So one thing is being able to drive it. So it goes, and these go pretty fast. So they go uh, almost as fast as the fastest microorganisms that have ever been uh, uh, measured. So if you care, the magnitudes are hundreds of microns per second, which means uh, it can go uh, a millimeter in you know, 10 seconds, which is, maybe doesn't seem that fast, but it's faster this length scale. <laughs> it's only, it's going its own, it's, it's going, every second it's going 10 diameters of its own length, okay, which is fast. The other part that's difficult is how do you control, how do you steer it, okay? So it's one thing to get something to move, it's a totally different thing to make it, to make it steer, okay? And again, the, here the, the intuition isn't that difficult, all we do is we change that angle. So if you're riding your bike, you know that you do not have to necessarily rotate your handlebars to turn. You can lean, right, and turn, yeah? And so we can use that same uh, uh, sort of analogy here, and if we rotate these guys, you can see it on this one, as I cant it, as I, as I rotate it a little bit, I can change its angle and I can do any type of arbitrary shape. So as I change that angle from it being completely flat on the surface to being comp completely perpendicular to the surface, then I can uh, um, basically have it move any, every different angle. And so we can do all these kind of program motions. And that's okay if I know where I want to go, right? But I don't necessarily want to know where I want to go if I'm trying to get this through somebody's vasculature, all right? So this is an experiment that I did not um, uh, approve. It was done without me knowing. <laughs> so this is O'Neill. Here's our, our, our postdoc. Uh, and as anybody, uh, I guess, of his generation, he hooked his magnetic field up to a joystick. And then he's driving his, uh, he spent God knows how much money creating uh, this maze <laughs> and then driving these guys through here. So at, at first I was not, I, it, was, it was a very, uh, you know, long eye roll when I saw this. Uh, and I said, what did you do last week? And he said, I made this maze and I ran it through here. I said, that's not useful. The National Institute of Health does not care about that. But it's proven to be a very uh, uh, nice example that we have this really fine directional control that one could even do externally, all right? So how do we translate this into uh, something useful in terms of human health, okay? And so the uh, uh, disease that we're particularly interested in or disease that we're interested in are these occlusions. Uh, when you form a blood clot, uh, particularly in the brain, there's not a lot of uh, uh, options in terms of, of treatment, okay? There's essentially two ways that you can treat this. One is a, uh, there's a drug that dissolves clots, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about it, but it's uh, called Alteplase. And um, it 
very slowly will de degrade a clot. And it, it works really well. It's, an, it's, it's a nice drug, but it's difficult to get that drug to the clot sometimes. So it all depends, about, tend, depends on where a clot forms. So if a clot forms in a large enough artery where you can get a catheter into that uh, artery and into that clot, you can deliver that drug very close to the clot. Alternatively, I can use a, a, a catheter or a mechanical device to actually in, in, uh, a mechanically, it's called a thrombectomy device, but essentially pull it out for, with just a mechanical uh, uh, sort of grabber, if you will. But it doesn't work if you have a clot that's in a small vessel or in a vessel that's uh, uh, not accessible to these catheter-based methods. And so we wanted to figure out a way. So if I have a, a small artery, and these are a, a, a type of stroke called lacunar strokes, which are not uh, quite as severe as, as some of the strokes that you would have in the large arteries of your brain, but over time, uh, they tend to repeat and, and happen over and over again. And so getting rid of them and actually being able to, to treat them has been a, a real challenge for the last, really has been almost no new treatment for this disease in, in 30 years. So we thought, can we inject these guys in? And so one of the beauty, you know, one of the real advantages of this methodology is that you're, you can inject in these really small beads, okay? So again, they're the size of a blood cell, so they're gonna go in and they're not gonna, uh, you know, get caught in, in small vessels or in capillaries. But when you apply a magnetic field, they assemble into larger things. So we call them, you know, microbots or microwheels. Then they assemble into these larger things, and these larger things can do actual work, okay? So the idea is that we can inject them in, uh, we can assemble them. Uh, I won't show data, but we can assemble these in flow. So they can be in blood flow, and they will assemble. They'll find each other. The, the forces of, these, of two of these guys to find each other is actually pretty significant. They'll, they want to be next to each other. Uh, there's a lot of attraction there. And what we can actually do is pull them off and then bring them into a clot, get up to that clot, and then try to ablate it. So that what, I'll talk, what I'll show today is just that last step, which is how do we take these guys and actually try to uh, uh, dissolve a clot. So in this video, what you're seeing is on the left is a fluid that uh, is plasma. So plasma is just your blood without blood cells in it. And on the right is a blood clot. Okay, and what you're going to see are a lot of these wheels uh, going in here and dissolving this clot. And so what we've done is we've taken that drug, Alteplase, that's used um, commonly to, to, to treat stroke, and we've attached it to the surface of these beads. Right? And so they're on the bead, and we're going to drive those beads into this interface. And this, the first part of this movie works exactly the way I thought it would work kind of when, I was, when we were thinking of this project. Okay, we get uh, this nice, smooth dissolution. You can see there's a lot of these guys. But the interesting part, and what's really been uh, quite fascinating and exciting, is what happens later on. And so it, it turns out that what these guys end up being able to do a little bit later on is they start to penetrate into the clot. And you'll start to see some of these guys break through. Okay? And when they break through, the, the, the rate that this clot breaks down really starts to accelerate at a, at a rate that you know, we would just never see, even if you inject it in a very, very high concentration of this drug. Uh, and so they really start to do a little bit of mechanical work in addition to the, kind of what we say, the, the biochemical, biochemical work of this enzyme just breaking down uh, of the clot. And so as this goes on, you can see bigger and bigger wheels. You get these guys that penetrate through, I think a little bit later. Yeah, you see more of them. And they really, it, it, it's pretty remarkable. We're really excited about this, uh, these results. So they really start to, these guys, we kind of think, we call them the Marines. Uh, they go in first, 
uh, they start to do a little bit of bushwhacking, and then that allows larger and larger wheels to go through there. So that was really great, good, good first result. But we wanted to do, see if we could do a little bit better, and this is where we came back to this idea of how do you, how do you really make this more efficient? How do you get these guys to really sample and, and get into the, the clot a little bit better? And so we went back to this idea of a corkscrew. And I, we, we've been looking all through literature, not just like the literature of the last 10 years, but like the literature of the last 200 years to see how do you drive something into, uh, whether it's a solid or a viscous fluid. And really the corkscrew is the best thing that's been invented so far. So we said, can we just take a, a corkscrew motion? Will that make any difference? This is just a, uh, here you're just seeing the motion of what we, what we call a corkscrew-like motion compared to the direct motion. So, so now instead of them just following a straight path, they follow this spiral-like path. Now we have a race. Exactly. All right, here's the race. This is what you saw before, direct motion. These are the corkscrews. These are, these are the drugs. This is just the drug without a, a bead. So this is uh, two different concentrations of that drug, a low concentration and a high concentration. You can see that front dissolving. Uh, but what you'll see as this, as this movie progresses is, is the corkscrews are particularly good at getting in and actually getting bigger <laughs> assemblies or bigger uh, size of these wheels into the clot. And it's, uh, you know, again, really pleased. But the way that they do this is they're sampling. With, with the way that they're moving is a little bit different than the way that these guys move. These guys kind of run into a brick wall. When they run into a brick wall, they just keep running into a brick wall. Okay? What these guys do is because they're kind of circulating, they sample a lot of different areas. And what they find, and you maybe saw it at the beginning of this movie, I can replay it, is they find the weak part of the wall. Okay? And you'll see somewhere uh, up here that there's a, a kind of breakthrough where a handful of them start to get through and then it opens the floodgates. It's right about there. Yeah. And once, that, once we start to get that crack in the wall, then we're able to get it larger and larger, and you see bigger and bigger of these guys get to, start to get through. So not only are they bringing some mechanical motion into this, uh, which makes it more efficient just from down here, but they're also finding the weakest spots. And they're really able to, you know, even compared to these direct wheels, are able to dissolve that clot significantly more quickly. All right. It is amazing. Okay. So, 20 minutes. Yeah. Am I done? <laughs> I have two minutes. 30 seconds, maybe. All right. So, all well and good. We've been doing this in, uh, uh, you know, outside of the body. We started to do this in some animal models. Uh, but one of the tricky parts and this is what we're, we're working on right now, is how do you, this is a, a, maybe even a more difficult engineering challenge than the one that I presented so far, is that, say this is a, so this is a, um, an image, an electron microscopy image of, the, of a human brain, or the vasculature of a human brain, I should say. This is one of the large vessels that runs up um, through your brain, and then you have these branching vessels, okay? And so how do I get uh, the blood, how do I get something, how do I pull something out of what is very fast flow, so the blood flow is going quite quickly through a, a major artery, how do I pull these guys out and get them to a clot that might be um, upstream from this, from this uh, junction between the, the two vessels? And so I'll just show a little bit of, of how we've been able to do that. Again, the beauty of doing this with magnetic fields is that um, they're, they're really the best, 
they're fantastic because they don't uh, attenuate in tissue. And what I mean by that is unlike ultrasound and unlike a lot of other uh, sort of external fields, the deeper you go into the body, those typically fall off. So you can only do an ultrasound so deep, okay? But uh, as you've, if you've ever had a CT or an MRI, you know, you can go all the way through your body. And so these fields don't uh, decrease as they go through the body. And so we can actually be deep in, because these are deep structures in the brain, we can still get pretty good fields. And so in this movie, you'll see a, a, just an example of how we can do this. So these guys are in a, a pretty fast flow, and we're able to pull some of these guys out. So there's a little, not all of them can get out, but a handful of them can get out. And so we call this the sort of escape, if you will, escape velocity. And we can actually use the magnetic fields that we've used to assemble them, the magnetic fields that we use to translate them, to pull them out of that fast blood flow and get them into what is uh, essentially no flow. So if you have a, a, an occluded vessel that has a, a big clot in it, there's no flow. And so we can actually take advantage of the fact that we can, there's, a, there's kind of some unique fluid mechanics there where because there's no flow there, it's easy to pull these guys out and bring them upstream. I'll stop there because I don't want to go over my time. Um, but I'm looking forward to the Q&A. I need to acknowledge a couple people. Uh, the fantastic voyage slide was Dave Marr's contribution to this project. He's my colleague. Uh, Paco Herson is, our, uh, is, is, is in uh, neuro, neurosurgery and, and neurology at the University of Colorado. And uh, he's our collaborator on, on animal models of, of trying to put these in animal models of stroke. Uh, Onur uh, and Kuldeep are the two postdocs who worked on this. Onur is the guy who came up with the brilliant insight to just rotate the magnetic field. Uh, Dante is a, another grad student in the, in the lab who's been working on some of these escape issues. And I usually thank my funding sponsors, but I will thank you because this is all taxpayer money. These are federal uh, um, agencies, the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation fund this research. So, thank you for your attention. All right, we'll take a quick break if you need another snack or a drink if we have any beer left, and we'll come back here in a little bit for a Q&A. Don't go away. <laughs> they won't go away. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there we go. All right. With gratitude to the sound guy, I'm back. All right, we're back. Thank you for staying and for coming up with your awesome questions. We're gonna get Dr. Neves back up here to answer them for you. On your way out, if you happen to have stuff that might be easy to throw in one of the bins over here, that would be awesome as well. And um, when the questions are asked, if you don't mind repeating them so that they end up on the recording. I can do that. Awesome, thank you. Yes, sir. When you have these microbots working away at a clot, is there any concern that you're going to, say, break off a chunk of the clot that'll clog another artery? So the question is, when these bots are, are eating away and, and, and dissolving away the clot, could a, a piece of a clot, like an embolus, get shed off and then clot something downstream? So uh, the, my answer to that is that what you, what's hard to appreciate in these videos is, the, is how small these things are. So this is essentially how you often get a stroke, is that there's a, a clot formed in one part of the body, uh, it sheds an emboli, and that goes up into uh, your brain and then occludes a smaller vessel. Okay? And so that can happen anywhere in the vasculature, and it'll just go downstream to a smaller vessel, and if it's big enough, 
And you know, at the end of the day, if it's bigger than um, a handful of red blood cells, it'll eventually clot a, a small enough uh, uh, blood vessel. But these guys are, the, are this, almost the same size or are the same size or smaller than a red blood cell. So the way that they're, it's a really, uh, it's almost like a, a very fine sandpaper, right? Uh, you're not, I mean, we do sometimes see a little bit of that, like these, these uh, chunks coming off of there, but they're pretty small relative to the, um, you know, what would, would clot something downstream. So it's not as much of a risk that, as it is for, um, more of a risk with these thrombectomy devices, which are pretty, are, are pretty amazing. So they have these really cool catheters. Um, one of them is called the, the Mercy Retriever. I know the guy, he's French, of course, who came up with this. But it's a really cool thing. That's a, it's a, it's a um, device that's made out of a wire that's called a shape memory alloy, which is something that's one shape, and then when you apply a voltage to it, it becomes another shape. And he uses this to actually protrude something th through that's, um, say, uh, like a, a rod, and then uses a, uh, you know, applies a voltage, and it becomes kind of like a... A net, and then they can rip these things out. But those are—they're still they're, these things are big, and they leave behind a lot of material on the wall. So they do one of two things: they either leave stuff behind, and a lot of things will shed, or they rip off the um, lining of the red of the of the vessels, and then you get another cl clot. So this is a little bit more. Um, there's a little more finesse here, even though that looks kind of violent at that scale. Um, what you just described is that called a so the question is, that it, what I described is, is it a stent? So a stent is, uh, if you have, when you start to have narrowing of a, of a vessel, uh, we'll put in stents. And so stents have a similar uh, mechanism. So there's, there's different types of stents, but they also go in pretty small uh, because you have to rope them in through the catheter. And then, we ex then they expand out, and that holds the vessel open. So that's usually due to just uh, the wall thick arterial thickening due to uh, atherosclerosis. And so when it starts to get very, very, very narrow, uh, you'll put a stent in place and try to push it back open. So that's just the mechanical device. And then the stent stays in there for a long time. Uh, and stents also cause clots. So, you know, this has been a... Stents are... A, uh, you know, tech, we've been putting stents in folks for 25 years, and there's been very various forms of them. Uh, they used to be just... They started off being just these bare metal things. So they were... Uh, titanium or, or some type of metal. And then they started coating them with polymer. And then they started coating with polymers that release drugs. And then it turned out that the drug-releasing ones caused a lot of problems, and they went back to them, something that's a little bit more like metal. So that's been a, a long kind of process. Uh, but it's a similar idea, where you take a catheter and, and then expand something. My question about the bots, I'll be quick. How do you get them out once they're in there? So the question is, how do you get the bots out? The, uh, okay, so there's two answers. Do you want the truth? <laughs> or do you want what I wrote in the grant? <laughs> so these will be naturally eliminated by the body through, um, there's, there's, a, there's a mechanism for getting rid of these sized things uh, through your body. Uh, and so, you, you know, the argument is, okay, well, these are, Someone doesn't necessarily want a bunch of latex beads running around in their vasculature. Uh, there's a little bit of a trade-off here. I mean, a, a stroke is a, a pretty serious complication. Uh, you know, the complications that could come along with having these latex beads in your uh, system are not completely benign, but I would say are you know less harmful and, and potentially more long-term than than uh, the stroke itself. You know, and, uh, one idea, and this is not something that we've actually done, but it's an idea, is because they're magnetic particles. 
you can retrieve them with a magnetic field. And so there's been other folks who've used these types of uh, particles for imaging, like I said at the beginning of the talk, so you can inject these in and they'll go places and they'll light up in, a, in a, an MRI. And then if you hold, a, hold a, a pretty strong magnet next to a pretty large vessel, you can retrieve a lot of them. So you can potentially pull, pull some of them out, back out. Um, so the question is, is does the natural flow push them out? Uh, they end up getting eliminated in your liver. <laughs> Liver's great at taking things out. So, yeah. are, are these magnetic fields that you're driving them with kind of like a magnetic gun or a magnetic uh, acceleration with a train? So the question is, what's the, the nature of the magnetic field and the, the actual apparatus? So the, the magnetic fields we use are from speakers that we bought on eBay. So they are, um, they're about, they, they're about, they look exact, they're the same diameter uh, as a, a toilet paper roll. And it's just a, a copper wire wound around essentially a, a cylinder. And then there's five of them. So there's uh, four in the, this, the plane that's perpendicular to the surface. And that causes, the, that gives us that rotating field. And then we have a, a, a fifth coil that lets us stand them up. And then the, the field just rotates between them. So you need, at least three coils, like an X, Y, and a, a Z, but we use five. So, over here. So yes, we're sir. actually controlling these things. Was your assistant onto something with this joystick idea? So the, the question is, how do we control them? Can you use a joystick? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the question is, uh, I think the challenge is, is how do you know how, where are you going to drive these things? So there has to be some directionality. I have to move them from you know one place to another, and so there you would you would likely need so you probably need to couple this with some sort of imaging, right? So you have to say where's the clot, and if I know generally where the clot is, then I can say I know generally which way to, to essentially point the field or to rotate them to drive them. But uh, they're a little small to see. You, know, you, you can't really see individual particles on an MR. So like the the resolution of a of, of most MR is like a millimeter ish. You know, really good ones are hundreds of 100 microns, and these things are on the order of 10 microns. So you can't see, you could see swarms of them or large ones of them, but that's, you wouldn't necessarily see individual ones that you could, could drive through that, that maze. But, you know, certainly having that level of control is advantageous. So how close are you to uh, trying it on a human plot? So the question is, how close am I to trying it on a human? Uh, there are a lot of rules and regulations about that. Um, so really the first step is to try it in, 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 a, in a mouse or in a, an animal model. What's actually difficult here, and, and this is a, another it's a little bit of a sidebar, what's one of the things that's really limited stroke research and stroke therapy is the lack of good animal models. Um, and this is true for a lot of diseases, but uh, mice don't typically get strokes, especially young juvenile mice, which is what are typically used in, in, in biomedical research. And inducing a stroke is also... The way that the models that we have are very crude, so they don't really the clots don't look very much like the clots that humans get. It's really hard to model these types of uh, uh, pathologies or these diseases in uh, in a human. So um, it's a that's, it's a tricky it's, it's a little chicken and egg because you do have to with anything like this you have to be able to show demonstration and typically in an animal model and typically in a large animal model before you can get into uh, a human unless there's some real compelling you know, evidence one way or another. So it's, it's, that's a difficult uh, difficulty that we're, we're getting into now with our, our collaborator.
I'll come back to you. Um, so, I, it's really a love story. Um, I'm, uh, 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 during the introduction, so I'm a chemical engineer by training, but I, uh, mostly followed my, uh, wife around from place to place. And so she, uh, is a physician and she went to medical school in Philadelphia, and therefore I moved to Philadelphia, and I needed a place to work, and I ended up finding, uh, working in a blood biology lab to study clotting. And that's like the truth. I just started working on clotting. And then I came to Mines about nine years ago. And um, I, I found that that was, uh, you know, I, I, that community was good for me. And uh, it's actually easy to, it's, speaking of, it's easier to do experimentation with human blood at Mines than to bring mice onto campus. So I just collect blood from undergraduates. <laughs> Yes, sir. So, do you, um, I know there's a number of steps left, but would you anticipate that this could be uh, a preventative measure? You know, like take one of these pills and you'll never get a blood clot and you'll never get a stroke? No. So, I, I, you know, and I shoot down, this is also a little bit unrelated, I shoot down a lot of similar approaches that propose something like this because the difficulty of, uh, you know, the other difficulty of treating stroke or, or a lot of cardiovascular events is they're acute and unpredictable. Right? So it's, it's not like uh, treating a lot of chronic diseases. You don't know when you're going to have a heart attack. You don't know when you're going to have a DVT. You don't know when you're going to have pulmonary embolism. These are really unpredictable events. Uh, unless you're at a hospital and you're showing some you know, certain markers or certain signs for these kinds of things, it happens you know, when people are at home. And so there's not much you can do. I mean, there's a lot you can do in terms of, uh, you know, people take anticoagulants and they take antiplatelet medications. But these guys, like these beads, they're circulate, they won't circulate in the blood for very long. So they're not the kind of thing that you could, uh, and they're also not something that you would uh, ingest, right? So they're pretty big. Uh, they have to be put through IV. Uh, you know, I, I think that the the burden of, of, of doing something like that chronically is shown with a lot of other diseases. So one of the other things I work on is hemophilia. Uh, and folks who have hemophilia give themselves, have to give themselves IV injections. And there, the issue is not so much the drug, but it's the compliance. Because people don't like to inject themselves with drugs every day in their, in their veins. It's painful. It's not fun. It's hard. Uh, and so there's always this, uh, sometimes, there's a, well, often, there's a disconnect between people like myself who are on the basic science side of things and somebody, like a clinician, uh, who would say, well, that will never work because no one will do that. <laughs> like, my patients won't do that every day. It doesn't matter how it works. You know, and that's a, often, that's a pretty big divide. So you can come up with some pretty cool technologies and uh, go all the way through trials, and it turns out that compliance ends up being an issue. And that's been a major uh, challenge in our, in the sort of bleeding and thrombosis community for new anticoagulants. So there's a very common uh, anticoagulant called warfarin, um, um, that, what's the other name for warfarin? Coumadin. Okay, sorry. So Coumadin is the, yeah, the trade name. So Coumadin or warfarin are bad drugs because they're very, it's not a great drug. It's uh, the same thing that's in, they've been using it for, you know, 70, 80 years. It's the first anticoagulant that we, start, we started using. It's used in rat poison. Um, it's not a, you know, it's not a particularly 
intelligent drug, if you will. It, it, ha it has a lot of effects, it has a lot of side effects, but it's really effective, and the reason it's effective is that you have to go to your doctor's office every month, and they check to see what your, it's something called an INR, but basically a clot, how, your clot time, how, how, how long it takes your blood to clot, and that's why it's such a good drug, is because the compliance is fantastic, or forced, if you will. And we have these new anticoagulants now, um, Gravoxaban and, and, and some other more, you know, cooler to drugs from the molecular perspective, but the compliance is not as high. And so people who are on them are having worse events than Coumadin, even though Coumadin is, you know, not nearly as interesting of a drug or as, as sensitive a drug. Back to you, sir. So have you thought about using this technology for cleaning tubes or pipes or something like that that's clogged? So the question is, Tech, using technology to, using the same thing to ablate other stuff, clog tubes of all sorts, for sure. Yeah, so we've, uh, both in biological and non-biological uh, uh, applications, you can imagine anything, especially something that's particularly small, where you can't get a, uh, a rotor router into, <laughs> uh, you could definitely use these guys. I think one thing that I should probably emphasize is that it, it's a real combination of the mechanical action and the, the, the chemistry that's breaking down the clot. So if we don't have that drug on there, these things don't do, any, they don't do anything to a clot. They just, it, again, it, it looks impressive on the, on the screen. It's blown up, right? But the forces that these uh, little guys are actually imposing on something is, is pretty small. Like, not enough to, like, we've done, of course, we've done this experiment where we just take them and run them into these clots. Uh, they don't do <laughs> anything. They just spin around. <laughs> so you really need, it's like a combination of, of a chemical uh, dissolution and then the mechanical action. And really the mechanical action is what drives them into those clots once you start to eat them away a little bit. So it's, it's that, that combination that makes it a, a, a unique, uh, like a strategy. Yes, sir. So the question is, could you use a combination of a corkscrew or thrombectomy that's fast and then something to clean up the walls? Uh, so that was part of an original proposal that we wrote a long time ago. Uh, we haven't, I, I think that's a perfectly, you know, that's a great idea because you can imagine using one as a sort of a coarse uh, treatment to just reestablish blood flow and then the other is to, to maybe clean up the arteries or clean up the, the walls. The challenge there is that once you reestablish blood flow, there's a lot of force that, that washes things out. And so then you need a, uh, a way to get those wheels to stick a little bit better. And we're working on some stuff along those lines as well. Here's Ms. Ma'am. You can, you can definitely measure that. Uh, we haven't done that, but this particular, you know, latex, since it's such a, a common material, this has been done. And so they'll go through, I mean, some things will get uptaken by macrophages. They're kind of big. Macrophages are, are, are blood cells that'll eat um, bacteria. Um, most of it, that, you know, when you, if, you, if you inject these guys into an animal and then you take the animal apart and figure out where, the, where they went, they mostly go into the, that's, the majority of it is in the liver. So if you, or if you look at a scan and say, where did these things go? They're, they congregate in the liver. Some in the, also in the lungs a little bit too, in the vasculature of the lungs. Yes, ma'am. Um, with all the cardiovascular as things they're doing now, one thing is that cooling people down in the crisis. Uh -huh. So how do these relate to this body that's now way cooled 
Sure. So the, the question is, would this work in combination with hypothermia or hypothermal thermal treatment, which is lowering the body temperature, which is definitely being used in, an, in emergent settings when somebody is bleeding or they're, they're, you're trying to slow down uh, a sort of an acute traumatic event? Uh, I, I don't think it would be, in terms of the mechanics of, the, of these guys, I don't think it would affect it very much because they're completely drawn. They're, they're driven. Their power comes from the magnetic field. And that they can, they would go, go, uh, you know, if it was, and the, when you do hypothermia, you're, you're not talking about, you know, freezing somebody, right? You're taking someone from 37 degrees, and I think maybe you're bringing them to 30 degrees, sorry, Celsius, 37 degrees Celsius to 30 degrees Celsius, or I don't know what the Fahrenheit conversion is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's cold, but it's not, uh, I don't think it's at the point where you're changing the physical properties. Where it would have an effect is how fast these reactions happen, so we're, it's, I, I you know, didn't want to get into the biochemistry so much, but because the drug is on the beads, then the, there's an enzyme that's on the beads, and the enzyme is making something else that's another enzyme, so on and so forth. That would all slow down significantly because chemical reactions are very temperature dependent. So that could, that would, that could slow down the, just the rate that you would dissolve these guys. So the, I, the question is, is there, uh, as, as I started with the, the science fiction example, is, is there, uh, um, I guess, is, is the question, were we uh, inspired. inspired by the, the, the science fiction? Yeah, for sure. I think that that's, um, the reason why I think these things make great analogies is because I, I, I don't think that, you know, it's, it's not a, a stretch from the imagination to say that something like a, a tricorder has been, you know, I've seen that in a, in a lot of talks. I've got, I, you know, a lot of people have talked about this, right? Uh, same idea. Can I have a handheld diagnostic that tells you what's wrong with somebody? Uh, that certainly inspired uh, a certain group of people. Not me. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, but that's, I've been around these, like, people. I work at mines. I'm not a nerd. All right. Last one? Last two? Uh, how about making the bead interior out of corn starch? Something complex and then your body would just digest it. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the, uh, the question is, can you, if you make the bead out of something other than latex, could it just dissolve? Yeah, that's definitely another pathway. There's a, uh, or another, another way to go at it. So there's a, a material that's particularly popular that's made out of, um, polylactic acid, which is what's your, a lot of the, the degradable plastics are made out of. So if you buy uh, forks and spoons and, and uh, uh, plastic cups that, that are biodegradable, they're usually made out of polylactic acid. So you could replace latex with something like that, and then you have something that's, that's potentially biodegradable, for sure. So the question is, there, uh, is there application to amyloid plaques in the context of Alzheimer's. Uh, that's, 
a very insightful question because I've written a grant about something like that. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, diseases that affect the microvasculature of the brain you know, include Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And so anytime you start to have degradation of the blood-brain barrier, which is this physiological uh, sort of cellular barrier between the, your, the vessels in your brain and the, uh, the brain itself or the extracellular space of the brain, that contributes to a lot of neurodegenerative disorders. And again, a lot of times the challenge is not the drug, but it's the delivery. And how do you get drugs into compromised vessels? How do you get to drugs into places they don't want to go? Uh, how do you get specificity? How do you get targeting? And so we definitely thought about that. Um, and you know, it's, a, it's definitely another application of, of these, this technology. All right. Just wanted to mention that next month, Golden Beer Talk, since it's always on the second Tuesday of the month, make your plans now, is on Valentine's Day. <laughs> right? So we'll have a little festivity going, and uh, it'll be a good opportunity to learn about the body's metabolism, which happens to be the topic. Uh, yeah, don't bring any sugar. I think it'll be a downer on the sugar thing. Anyway, we hope to see you next month. Thank you very much, Dr. Nice, for coming down. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>